I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to this episode of The Stages Podcast. Growing up, I was aware that my parents were regularly glued to a program on television. I knew that this show must have been pretty special, as I was instructed not to watch it and inevitably it became bedtime. I'm sure some of you can relate to this ritual. However, compelled by what must have been happening on the television, I would sneak out of my bedroom to spy the television from the hallway. I then became exposed to the antics and explicit behaviour of the inhabitants of a block of flats in Sydney's Paddington. Dory and Herb Evans, Les and Norma Whittaker, Don Finlayson, Arnold Feather, Flo Patterson and Vera Collins became a fascination for my family, for my town and for everyone at school. Catchphrases became part of the vernacular. Herbert, why wasn't I told? You no doubt recognise that this groundbreaking television show is number 96. And my guest today on stages is the creator of the show, David Sale. Born in Manchester, England, David was brought to Australia by his migrant parents and has had a lengthy career as an actor, scriptwriter, producer and author. His contributions to Australian television are supreme. Satirical comedy and episodic drama received the nation's attention and obsession under David's guidance. As executive producer of The Mavis Bramston Show, or as creator of Number 96, David's work was guaranteed to be controversial, outrageous, groundbreaking and classic. Both of these series rated highly in their day and still rank amongst the most famous and influential programmes to have appeared on Australian television. David is a font of knowledge, reflecting on the development of television and theatre in Australia. The craft of writing is also examined insightfully. David shares many anecdotes and much joy in this compelling episode of The Stages Podcast. David Sale, it's lovely to have me at your home. It's nice to be here with you. (laughs) The the gorgeous Gold Coast. Um, How long have you been on the Gold Coast? Two and a half years now. I came up here on a whim, more or less. I just decided I needed a change. And I thought, where can I go that's the weather's warmer and I can just relax? And I came up to the Gold Coast and I've never been colder or wetter. (laughs) (laughs) Or more stressed out because I bought a beautiful house, but something's always going wrong. And I'm constantly dreading 
what domestic catastrophe will be next. <laughs> the latest one I think I've lost, I've just had my pontoon, uh, which is like a jetty, yeah. float away in the river and I've had to have it secured. I thought a pontoon was a card game. I, I, know yes, what I thought it was a really good card game. <laughs> but anyway, I'm here and there are lots of people worse off than living on the Gold Coast. David, you've carved a, a triumphant career as a writer, uh, from sketch comedy to review screenplays and novels. I, I assume that books were very important to you uh, in your use. Reading of some kind or other, some description or other, I think must have been very important to me, right from almost kindergarten age, because I, I started reading a lot of comic, comic books, you know, and uh, I remember jingles and film fun and all these different kinds of cartoonish comic books. And uh, my father got a bit concerned and he spoke to my teacher, one of my teachers about it, I think it was the headmaster, and uh, the headmaster said, look, so long as he's reading something, that's the main thing. He'll grow out of comic books and into uh, more serious reading. Don't interrupt what he's doing now. Just let him read. Uh, comic books are effectively storyboards, so it's interesting that, right. that a lot of your career was in episodic television. That's right. So, so. Yes, of course. I, I, I knew nothing of it. I before it television in kindergarten. <laughs> no. I didn't know what I was preparing myself for. Yeah. What are the narratives, or, or, or the authors perhaps, who stand out from your childhood? Oh, well, as soon as I could read, actually, I, um, uh, I remember the news agents had a sort of a library. You could, uh, the, the local news agents, there was a library, and they had lots of Agatha Christie books. And it was only about a shilling to borrow a book or something like that for two weeks. And so I read practically every Agatha Christie book there was and loved them. I loved the, the, the sort of cleverness and the mystery and the trying to guess the murderer. And of course, I ended up playing the murderer in Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap in years to come. And I loved doing that. She, uh, she certainly knew how to uh, sew a plot together, didn't she? Well, yes, except that, except that when, when we came to... Uh, it was the first time outside the West End. Uh, the Mousetrap had been running for 20, something like 20 years. And this was a British Council tour to Malta, of all places. And when you get to read the script and study the script, it's totally impossible. People turn up... that shouldn't be there and think, you find a lot of holes <laughs> in it, you know. Uh, but uh, it's def but the mousetrap is such a, a skillful thing. You're, you don't realise, as a member of the audience, you don't realise the, 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 uh, the potholes in it at all. And the ending always comes as a surprise. I remember when I spoke up and, and really confessed, there was, a, there was a draw of breath from the audience. It was like a summer breeze. It was incredible. I'll never forget that. It's uh, quite a feather in your cap to be the first production of The, of the Mousetrap outside of the UK. Yes, the that's right, yes. And when I came back, uh, uh, they, uh, the Mousetrap, of course, was still running in London. This is when I, I, we've jumped ahead a lot now. Uh, but I've been in Australia, we migrated to Australia, 
And then I went back to turn actor, to turn myself into an actor and got this job. But when I'd been to Malta in, in this, um, my agent uh, put me up for the West End production of The, of the Mousetrap. Um, even after 20 years, they changed the cast every year, annually, just so that nobody got stale. And uh, after a year, I think everybody wanted to get out of it anyway, after a year of doing it. And uh, so I auditioned, and I didn't get the part of the murderer, I got another part in it, and I was all set to go into it, and suddenly my agent rang and said, oh, I'm sorry, Dave, but uh, the, the actor who's playing that part has decided to stay on for a second year. So I didn't get to do it then. Well, we get to see the mousetrap in Australia. Like, I know. I just heard exciting, how amazing. Yeah. yeah, they ought to. I ought to make a personal appearance. <laughs> but no, that'd give the whole plot away if I did that. Yes, you know, you could play a cameo. But yes, John Frost and Crossroads Live are, are, are doing a national tour. So mm. hopefully, you'll get to see. We're very interested to see how it goes. You grew up in um, war-ravaged Manchester during the forties. Yes. Do you think um, your fascination with English as a subject at school and, and reading was a form of escape? from the horrors that were going on and... I suppose it was. I didn't realise that at the time. I mean, we... I'm total, I mean, we toddled off to, to uh, primary school with gas masks, you know. That was the... That was the... Uh, uh, the sort of... Uh, in a box with a, uh, the accessory I was thinking of. The accessory du jour was a gas mask. Now, can you imagine... A, a toddler having to carry around a gas mask yes. just in case they drop gas bombs. A packed lunch and a gas mask. Yeah, well, hardly a packed lunch and we were under strict rationing. Oh, true, true. <laughs> and there wasn't much to eat, actually. Tell me about your experiences with bomb shelters at that time. Well, uh, all, all I could say was, you know, when the, the, the sirens would go off, to uh, herald the arrival of the German bombers and uh, you'd waken up and you'd hear the siren and immediately you'd be frightened. And my mother or my father would scoop me out of bed and carry me around to um, my father's mother, my grandmother, who lived in the next street. She had an, uh, a brick shelter built in her backyard. And so we all used to huddle in this brick shelter until the all clear went. And sometimes the all clear didn't go until it was daylight. We'd spend the whole night just sitting there wondering what was going to happen next. So it was not a very good environment really to grow up in. Uh, many years of, of fear, as you've, you've just mentioned, mm. but uh, were there opportunities to laugh also and, and develop a sense of humour? Oh, well, I mean, yes. I mean, there's an inbred one in England. I always remember my uh, auntie, auntie Flo used to, used to come and share uh, uh, the Anderson shelter. She, she lived nearby too. And I can remember my grandmother. Uh, we were all rushing into the shelter because the, the ACAT guns were already going and we... You know, we were, we had to rush into the shelter, and and uh, my auntie Flo was saying, M "Mother, mother, come on, come on, what are you doing?" And my my grandmother said, "I can't find my false teeth." <laughs> and my auntie Flo said, "Mother, they're dropping bombs, not bloody meat pies." 
So, so there was this innate sense of English humour going th- through everything. A great skill to to uh, help everyone survive, I guess you know. If, oh yeah, um, yes. yeah. Even at the height of the Blitz, uh, you know, there were always stories of you know, uh, and uh, keep smiling and yeah. all this sort of thing. You know, and carry on. Carry on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were born Ernest Swindles. Yes. Yeah. Describe for me yourself as a child. What what sort of young boy were you like? Well, I was basically a loner. I think. Basically a loner. Um, I just... I don't know. Um, I didn't... I wasn't a group person. And I wasn't a, a gang person or anything. Uh, my parents used to take me... Even a, a very... Ch- ch- from being a toddler, they'd go to the movies once a week. And even during the war, there'd be one house at the movies, six o'clock till eight so that you'd be home before there was any danger of air raids. And so I think every Friday night they'd take me to the movies. So I grew up on the movies. And when, when uh, I grew a bit older, say 11, then I used to go by myself to the movies. And I became a huge movie fan and now I'm a movie buff. And it was... I don't, you know, it it was the movies that really shaped me uh, creatively, I think, uh, because nobody in our family had anything to do with theatre or writing or anything. They were just a working class, ordinary Lancashire family. So I must have been shaped by something, and I think it was the movies. Well, yes, those many uh, sessions that you spent at the film were were um, a tremendous education, weren't they? In yeah, all sorts and, of... and again, they were alone. So I, I right. didn't. I, I was. I was more or less a loner. Your dad worked in an aircraft factory, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a happy relationship with your dad, was it? No, not really. No, we didn't really relate somehow. But I'm, I'm always be glad, and I always revere him for bringing me to Australia. You know, for the two of my parents to come to Australia, I would think that being a migrant takes a bit of guts. And, um, you know, they they had the guts to... We were originally to go to to New Zealand, but uh, where my father had a sister in Napier. And uh, uh, the sister and, and her husband and two cousins. And we were supposed to go there. All through the war, I heard, as a child, I heard uh, talk of New Zealand. As soon as the war, we're going to New Zealand. And then there must have been some reason, some hold up, why we couldn't go to New Zealand. And my father said, Well, if we can't go there, we'll go to Australia. And that's how we came to Australia. But I'll always be grateful to him for that. So they arrived as £10 poms, I guess. Yeah, and I was £5. <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah, that's how £5 pounds for me, because yeah. I was underage. And so, uh, yeah, they got a bargain. A bargain sale, David's sale. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think stepping off that ship into Australia for the first time? What was it that struck you about this new country? Where are the cinemas? That's the first thing you wanted to know. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 We, we, we got off in Melbourne and we were met by, friend, by these people who lived in Melbourne, these 
friends of my father or some contacts of my father whom he got to know. And they met us and they drove us through Melbourne right out to Thomastown where they had a... Oh no, they didn't drive us to Thomastown, I'm sorry. They just drove us to a restaurant and I had my first meat in, I couldn't remember, a, a sort of steak. And I'd never had one before in my life. This is the post post war years, yes, yes. Yeah, and uh, uh, I was I was I was looking out the window as we went through Melbourne. I was looking to see where the cinemas were. That's that's the only thing that interested me. <laughs> that's not a bad obsession. No, <laughs> but we were actually nominated from Laura in the Blue Mountains, so we got on the ship back on the ship that day and sailed up to Sydney and then went up to the Blue Mountains. And of course, the Blue Mountains, were, it was like surfacing from a muddy pool into Technicolor. It was such a, a, a change. It was incredible. But of course, we only stayed there a month because my father, there was no work for an aircraft engineer in Laura. No, no, no. So we went, we went back to Melbourne to stay with these people who had met us off the ship there and they were living in the back of a chicken farm and they had an extra room so that's what my parents and I lived in and slept in. I slept on suitcases, they had uh, a bed and that's where we slept until my father bought a block of land, built a two-room bungalow on it and then within two years he'd built a house in front of it. So within two years, we were settled. A family from Lancashire? Yeah. Wonderful accent, the Lancashire accent. <laughs> it is an all. Did it pose problems? The, oh, the, yes. Yeah. People, I mean, when I became a cadet journalist, my first, I was office bound. They wouldn't send me out on jobs at untried. I had rounds to do. I had a number of, of uh, telephone uh, 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 numbers and I had to ring them like the undertaker round every night I had to ring all the undertakers to see if anybody famous had died <laughs> <laughs> and half of them couldn't understand what I was saying because of the accent so I had to voluntarily lose it to be understood right and to fit in, perhaps, also? Mm -hmm. To fit in as well? Yes! Yeah. Oh, yes! Yeah. I, was a, I wanted to fit in. Yeah. I wanted to fit in desperately. So what were your career aspirations? You know, your reading, your... your Nothing, I mean, I just, I just, you know, I was, I was happy. I thought, well, I'm a journal, I'm going to be a journalist now, I'm a cadet. Right. And I went through my cadetship, and it was a four-year cadetship, you know, literally four years. I went through it in two years. And then I, I um, so I became a D-grade journalist then. Working for the ABC, was it? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. But then I was going out with this girl and she belonged to two repertory players. And she, she, she said, would you like to come along? And I said, uh, oh, I don't know, you know. And she said, uh, well, we're short of men. We're always short of men and you might get a part. And I said, oh, nobody could understand me. In a part, no. <laughs> and so, so that again, I went and got a part, and that again helped me to uh, sort of uh, get away from the Lancashire accent. I worked on it, and 
I just, I suddenly loved acting and I wanted to be an actor. So it, uh, it refocused you away from journalism onto, onto something else? Yes, utterly. And I, I joined the Melbourne Little Theatre, which was a very prestigious... With Ira, uh, Irene Mitchell? Yes, Irene Mitchell. And then, uh, and then I, came up to see, I came up to Sydney on my very first holiday and I saw Phillips Theatre and I, I thought, oh, that review writing was incredible. And I went back and I said to Irene Mitchell, if a few of us kids get together, can we do a review like they do in Melbourne? So she said, well, get them together, get some material and audition for me. I, who had to write it? I had to write it. So I wrote it. We rehearsed it as kids. It was like a Mickey Rooney, Julie Garland. You know, let's put on a show. We auditioned a Sunday afternoon. Rooney Mitchell never stopped laughing. She then said uh, uh, she, she wanted to bring the other directors in. She trained them and brought them in. They looked at us and next minute we're doing the first Melbourne Little Theatre Christmas Review. Which became an annual sensation, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. It, it was a hit and it was repeated. We repeated it again the next year and then totally, totally uh, uh, bewitched by theatre, I decided to go back to England and become an actor where nobody could laugh at me if I failed. <laughs> So you've really dived right in. You're a journalist, you're an actor, you've started writing now. Yes, I know. There was always this... I guess there was always this thing of, of going on to something new. And I decided to go back to England. Again, as I say, I was, uh, I was very conscious of being an amateur actor here. So I, I caught a ship back to England. No flights, you know. You, know, you, you, you go about ship. Go the long way. Yeah, and the first guy, I think it was, got over there and I gave myself a week to get a job in theatre. Isn't that ridiculous? Yes, yes. I mean, it's stupid. It takes, it a, just shows it takes a month to find how, an agent. Sometimes. Well, I mean, nobody else, nobody could get work. Yeah. And I was going, I was in weekly rep on the, thir on the Thursday I was on my way to Bognor Regis. I went, I went and saw all the uh, agents, and one of them said, can you do a Scottish accent? And I said, well, I said, I originally come from Manchester. I said, Lancashire is as close to Scotland as anything, so I can have a go at it. So he said, well, they're doing Sailor Beware, and he said, they need a Carnoustie Bly, who's the Scottish sailor in it. And he said, uh, if you go there, um, there will be uh, a week's work, a week's rehearsal and a week's work. If you're no good, that's all you'll get. But if they like you, they'll ask you to stay on for the rest of the summer season because they need a, juve, a juvenile, juvenile lead for their uh, company. So I went there and did Carlos de Bly and on the dress rehearsal, uh, the, the director came to me and said, uh, would you like to stay on for the rest of our summer season? So I was in work immediately. Right place, right time. And, and I had, and I had a, a, the beginnings of a CV there because uh, I could go back to London and say, well, I've just been in rep and I've played so-and-so, 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 so-and-so. Theobald Salty Cow. Theobald Salty Cow. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, oh, that was Cockney. Yes, yeah. that was Cockney. You changed your name. T for two, H for Harry, A for hard labour. <laughs> oh, Jesus, I remember. I learned it in a weekend because I had to take over from somebody at the Hoberman Theatre Club in the West End. Mm. This is when I got back to London. Mm. And uh, uh, one, one of the ladies in the actresses it, at Bognor Regis, she'd written this play and it was being done at the Hoberman Theatre Club. And the actor who was playing Theobald Salty Cow, this, this burglar, Cockney burglar, had dropped out. And so she rang me and said, can you take over on Monday? And this was Friday. So I, I, I learned the whole thing. I didn't have a rehearsal. And I didn't drop a line. Everybody else did. <laughs> they were all frightened. <laughs> you changed your name in London, didn't you? Yes, I your, did. Your professional I, I got with name. this. I got with this very good... Uh, agent at uh, the Herbert de Leon agency who handled all the major stars like Anna Needle and Margaret Lockwood, all the reigning uh, big name stars. But uh, the, the agent there was a, a neighbour of a journalist friend of mine and it was through him that, uh, that, uh, that, that they chatted and this journalist friend said, Oh, I said, uh, I've got a, uh, this, this guy who's come over from Australia. Can he come and see you? And that's how I got in with Herbert de Leon Limited. Very prestigious. And the first time I went in, they said, well, um, you must join. Are you a member of Actors' Equity? And I said, no, not yet. I said, I just don't. I don't know why I, I hadn't. Uh, uh, oh, I know. This was before I, this was, no, it wasn't before I went to, but anyway, I only then joined Actors' Equity. And he said, on the way there, he said, think up a new name. He said, your current name won't work at all in show business. So I just had uh, four stops on the tube to think up a new name. If it had been a long journey, I might have ended up with something like Godfrey de Havilland or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> so how did you arrive at David Sale? Well, Sale in Manchester was actually where we'd been living just before we migrated to Australia. And uh, Sale Check, it was on the other side of Manchester. And uh, we'd been living Sale, so I did. And I just went through, and I thought, oh, David's a nice person. And so I christened myself uh, in, in, in four tube, tube station stops. <laughs> so I got to act as equity inside David's side, dollars David Sale. It's a lovely story. Uh, a couple of films also. Um, Just Joe with John Pertwee, who was a, oh, a yes. famous Doctor Who. Yes. Well, again, you see, uh, uh, they, uh, uh, Herbert, the people at Herbert de Leon said, um, they said, now, uh, forget any starring parts. They said that you're not, uh, you, you, you're, you're ugly. You're not, you're not, you don't look good enough. <laughs> Which wasn't very good for my ego, no, no. Uh, not very good for anybody's no. ego, and he said, but um, character parts, character parts, uh, you, you, you know, you're never out of work, never out of work, and so the first one was with um, was, uh, Crossroads to Crime, um, where, I, where I was just a teddy boy, uh, and, and it was like a roadside cafe, and I just had to lean against a jukebox. 
and Miriam Carlin, the great Miriam Carlin, was serving in, the, in, the, in this roadside cafe uh, behind the counter and uh, she just had to aim a line at me and say, ah, oh, you're not going to play that bloody thing again, are you? And I just had to shrug. But instead, of, so uh, we rehearsed it and then they said, okay, we'll have a break. And everybody went off to the canteen and I saw some bubble gum there so I bought some and then said, oh, we'll just do another rehearsal before the tape. So when she said, you're not going to play that bloody thing again, are you? I blew the most enormous, I looked at her and blew the most enormous bubble. <laughs> and the director said, oh, keep that in. And Miriam said, oh, I see. <laughs> One of those, eh? Well, we hadn't even spoken then, but she, she motioned me over to her chair and uh, she said, look, she said, I'm in things ain't what they used to be. And... Uh, a line of Bach musical. Yes. Yeah. And she said, there's a lot, lots of... She said, we're in great trouble. Joe Littlewood's having great trouble with a lot of the teddy boys in it. They're, they're not professional and they're not turning up and all that. And she said, I think you'd make a good one. And she said, uh, give me a number and I'll pass it on to her just in case. Now, wasn't that marvellous? I had to even met... Miriam Carlin, really, but just... The generosity. Generosity. And I gave her the number, never came to anything, but I appreciated that. And of course, then she came over to Australia. A couple of years later, when I returned to Australia, she came over to do a Philip review called Is Australia Really Necessary? And I went to see it, and I thought, oh, she won't remember me. And I went... I went around and I knocked at her dressing room door. Yeah, who is it? Just a minute, hang on. And come in. And I opened the door and she was sitting at the mirror and she looked through it and she said, me little teddy boy. She remembered me. So wonderful, wonderful. And, and so she said, oh, I'm, she said, uh, uh, she said, what are you doing here? Are you acting? I said, no, I'm writing for a show called The Mavis Branston Show. And she said, oh, I wish you'd have written stuff for this. She said, a lot of it's terrible. And I said, oh, well, I did, but it was rejected, but I'm using it all in Mavis Branston. <laughs> and she said, they've asked me, they've asked me to guest for six weeks. She said, you write my material for that. Now, I mean, she said that, and I, she didn't even know what kind of stuff I wrote. Yeah. Again... It was just out of the blue. Yeah, yeah. I'm not exaggerating with these out of the blue things. They just happened. And so when she, be, when she did Mavis Branscombe, I was a regular writer for it by then. So I, I wrote every single she ever did on Mavis Branscombe. Yeah. So a lot of success happening in London, but so why the return to Australia? Um, I just, I start to get homesick. Yeah, yeah. And I... I was turned off by the fact that the Herbert the Leon Agency was saying, oh, you know, character part. They said, we're building you up into the new George Cole. From Minder, that George Cole. Yeah, yeah. but he was a kid Yes, then. at the time. He yes. was younger then. Well, not a kid, but younger. But, but young and character played, parts. He played part. all these, you know, uh, Uriah Heep in a, in a Dickens... You know, all these ugly parts. <laughs> I didn't want to be the next George Cole. I didn't want to be the, the next anybody. I yeah. wanted to be the first David Sale. Yeah. 
And that started to turn me on. And uh, then I met somebody who, 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 uh, who wanted to come back to Australia. Uh, I thought, oh yes, I'm going back to Australia. And so we went on the continent just for a sort of farewell tour around Paris, various other places. And when we got back, um, the guy who had been sharing an apartment with us uh, said, oh, David, ring Granada straight away. He said, they've been, at, they've been ringing so many times. We're trying to find you. Uh, because you, you auditioned for them, didn't you? I said, yes, I auditioned for Coronation Street in my Beth Lancashire accent. And she said, he said, they want you. He said, they want you. He said, they're desperate. He said, they're, as, he said as soon as you come back, they want to hear from you. They want you to go into it. They've got a continuing part or something. And I thought, do I really want, because it was done in Manchester, of course. And I thought, do I really want to go? I, I, I went to Australia to get away from Manchester. I thought, do I really want to go back there? I thought, no. And so I, I literally came back to Australia where I wanted to be. Do you ever ponder what might have happened if you'd accepted the Coronation Street gig? Yeah, I don't know. I could have been in it for years. Well, that's true. Um, yes, you I think been. the part I've tried to find out, I think the part was Elsie Tanner's son, and Elsie Tanner's son was in it until he was middle-aged, right. 20 years later. Another way to make a living. Yeah. yeah, but you see, I came back to Australia because I wanted to be here, and I'm so glad I did. Yeah, yeah. I was absolutely delighted and fascinated to, to learn that you were also in uh, The King and I for Garnet Carroll in Australia. Yes, when I came back to Melbourne, you see, when, we, when I came back to Melbourne, of course, it was like starting from scratch again. But the, but the first break I got, I had a phone call and this voice said, hello, this is Tony Lamont. I want, I want, I've just been awarded my own IMT, and I'd like you to write for it. First, out of the blue, of my return. <laughs> I, didn't, I hardly knew the lady, but she'd seen the reviews at the little theatre. So immediately I was writing her IMTs in Melbourne tonight. That was the, you know, the uh, Graham Kennedy, it was Graham Kennedy's IMT in Melbourne tonight. And he was doing Monday to Friday, but it was too much for him and he wanted a night off. So Tony Lamont had one night a week. I think she was the first woman in the world to have a Tonight Show. I mean, exactly. this, this is she before was. Joan Rivers on yes. Johnny Carson. Yeah, yeah. and she wanted storyline Tonight Shows too, to right. get away from the desk. So we did a Western and various other things, you know. So, so that gave me my first start when I came back from Australia. And then, um, <clears throat> of course, I was auditioning. I did uh, a tour of And the Big Men Fly for the uh, Melbourne Little Theatre. Um, yeah, Alan, Alan Hopgood. That's right, yeah. yes, yes. Um, that was a play about f football. Did you know uh, anything about football? Not a thing. And I was a commentator, Harry, Harry something or other. And I literally had to sit at the corner of the stage at a desk with a mic and give a commentary on a football match and paint the picture of it. Build attention. For this, yeah. for this audience 
and the sound was all the upsurge in cheers to coincide with my commentary and I had to get really excited and everything. At one place, we did, we did a tour of Victoria and South Australia and at one place the stage was so small, I on the desk fell off the stage in front of the stage. <laughs> I got so excited. And then we did Woomera too. We did a Victoria and South Australia and one of our one night stands was a woman, would you believe? And they were in high spirits because they just launched the first rocket and it was called the Blue Streak. And so I put into my, I, I, I interpolated into my commentary, and there he goes up the field, like, just like a blue streak. <laughs> well, the audience just practically gave me a standing ovation. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> so I did, and the big men fly, Victoria and South Australia tour. And then uh, I did, uh, again, another review at the uh, Melbourne Little Theatre, and another one. And then um, I did it for King and I, and it was one of six boys who had played priests and all that sort of thing. This is with, uh, with Sheila Bradley. With wonderful and Sheila Bradley, yes. Uh, what a Zana. lovely lady she was. Yeah. Uh, and is, because she, she's up here on the Gold Coast it's too. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, Yes, so that was what, so I was in the King and I for a year, Melbourne, Sydney, and Perth. Tell me about the makeup. Oh, well, I mean, it was a, we couldn't do it now. It's the equivalent of blackface. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, slanting eyebrows. We had tuition into how how to look Asian. Well, how to look Asian? It was stupid. Uh, but we had to. But we also had to use this body makeup called Texas Earth. We did, when we were uh, palace guards and everything, we had to be bare top. So, I mean, no chest hair. We had all our hair cut off, practically. We were all semi-bald, like the king of tradition was after Yul Brynner, um, was always played. Um, and uh, we had to daub this Texas earth on every night, this body makeup. And... Uh, it literally got into our pores, and uh, you, you know, the, although we were showering and everything, all our makeup was stained. Uh, sorry, all our underwear was stained, but not only stained, it was it started to rot. Oh no! You know, jockettes suddenly started, and I thought, "What's doing this to the jockettes? What's it doing to our skin?" Oh. <laughs> the things you do for art, in yeah. ingrown hairs, and. Um... Oh, Dirty right. billa slips. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so you're managing to um, have a career as an actor and also a writer at the same time. Yes, it was combined. Yeah. And I thought, oh, how wonderful. I wasn't really making much money. I wasn't getting anywhere, really. But it was all, it was all good experience. Well, I, fabulous experience. Because, you see, in later years when I wrote scripts, having been an actor, I would never write a line that I couldn't say myself. And all the actors in, in various things, I always say, oh, David, your scripts are so easy to learn and so easy to say. And I said, that's because I say them first. And, and if I can't say them, they don't go on the paper. Yes, there's certainly a, an art to, to writing text, isn't there? Um, some scripts are very easy to learn. I'm talking great playwrights also. Yes. And others you can spend hours and it just doesn't go in. Yeah. yeah. Well, in later, in later times, um, 
you know, sort of, uh, I wrote several books, and the second one I wrote, The Love Bite, was optioned by an English director called Douglas Hickox. And he, through my agent, he rang and uh, he um, optioned the book and said, uh, uh, I'd like you to come over to London to uh, collaborate uh, or to consult me and write the first draft screenplay. And I said, oh, I've never written. Uh, how do you know that I could write a screenplay? He said, because the dialogue in the book is, is good dialogue. That's how it, so you see, it does come through. Anyway, after all that, after The King and I and everything, after that, that's when I came up to Sydney and landed right here with, a, with the best of good fortune, just as Mavis Bramson was started, and, and I became a, a freelance contributor to Mavis Bramson, and then later its executive producer. So tell me, how did Mavis Bramson enter your life? Well, I had one, when I came up to Sydney, I had a couple of films, I had a couple of comrades, Gloria Payton, the agent, whom I'd met uh, previously, but never as a client of hers, and uh, this actor, who was friends of somebody I knew in Sydney, this actor called Barry Creighton. So I rang Barry Creighton and I told him my name and I said, uh, I've just arrived from um, Melbourne. And he said, oh, what do you do? And I said, well, I said, I do some acting. And I said, I've been in reviews and I, I write review material too. And he said, oh, what are you doing tomorrow? He said, why don't you come up to Channel 7 and look at a, we're looking at a pilot I've just done called The Mavis Bramston Show. And he said, you might be... Uh, useful in uh, contributing to that if you'd like it. So I went out with him to, uh, I met him for the first time and went out to Channel 7, walked into this viewing room and sat on a couch and found myself in between Nolene Brown, who was playing Mavis Brownson, and the great Carol Ray, whom I knew from English movies. I thought, oh my God, Carol Ray, what's she doing here? and uh, saw the pilot, which was great, met the uh, executive producer, Michael Plant, and he said, we're going weekly, we've just been accepted, and we're going weekly, and we'll need all the material we could get. And I thought, I've got all that review material that I've written for Melbourne reviews, I could recycle it, yeah. and did. <laughs> <laughs> so I became a regular go-to, I became the go-to contributor, Michael Plant would ring me up and say, page three of this afternoon's Sun, there's a story on so-and-so, can you do a number on it? So I, I, I became the go-to contributor. And then sadly, uh, Michael died, and I felt they offered me executive producer, and I said, I wouldn't know one end of a camera from another, but they wanted a writer at the head, because if there was any gaps, it was my responsibility to fill them. These are, are relatively early days in Australian television also. Yeah. So, so you're in a, a, quite a privileged position to to create and, and invent what was to become I was some of our I was still only in my sort of mid-twenties, and, you know, I, I was suddenly offered on a platter 
Australia's most successful show. And probably the, the first time we're seeing um, satirical writing on, on Australian TV oh, as yeah. well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was all a wonderful... As I say in the, the documentary that's been made on the Mavis Ramsden show, it was like stepping on a magic carpet. It was very hard work. I mean, it was seven days a week, 18 hours a day. That was it. British TV had That Was The Week That Was and, and Not Only, but also... Were you familiar with those shows? No. No, you hadn't seen them? I hadn't seen them at that stage. They hadn't started when I was in England. Right, right. And I hadn't seen them. So your only experience, really, is review writing. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. First stage, yes. Yeah. So, so all that came in handy. And I was very quick, and also I could write lyrics. Uh, I, I, I'd learned the piano, and although I, I couldn't compose I couldn't compose music in other words write it down on paper I always had a tune when I wrote a lyric I always had a tune in my head which which kept the lyrics more or less in line uh, you know a, a tidy shall we say not untidy and then I'd get with Tommy Tico and I would sing him the song and he would take it down note by note with the greatest of patience and this is how I wrote. I, I had a couple of num a couple of songs in practically every Mavis Brampton show. You mentioned the great Carol Ray. Yes. Tell me, what did Carol mean to television in Australia? Oh, a great deal, because I mean, she was responsible for the Mavis Brampton show. Was her idea originally? Yes, she'd seen that. Way. Well, you know, she came to Australia again as more or less a migrant because. Uh, husband was a was a, a, oh, a world-class veterinarian who'd been in South Africa. They'd been in Kenya for a while and then he was transferred to Australia and she, being the dutiful wife and had shrugged off, well, she'd done a television course but, but had shrugged off performing. She, she then wanted to be behind the scenes. Um, came to Australia and uh, was taken on by Channel 7 as Australia's well, she was the first lady television executive. And it was her brief to think up new shows. And she had seen that was the week that was and thought, this is what Australia needs. So she put it to the management and they said, go ahead. And so she, she actually uh, formed the cast and the format of the Mavis Branson show. The so that's how important she was to start off with. Absolutely, very important, very important. The cast that fronted the show, uh, Carol Ray, Gordon Chater, the wonderful Gordon Chater, and, yeah. and the, the fabulous Barry Creighton. But there were a whole host of, of performers that, that featured in the show over, over its, uh, its, its run. Oh, it? yes, yes. There were, I mean, uh, quite, a, quite a number of people used to come in as guests, you know, uh, uh, one-off, like uh, Ruth Cracknell, for instance, and uh, various others like her would come in uh, as a guest for one show, and um, then there were, they, for some reason they kept on bringing, well, you know, for my, when I took over, they brought out a, a very minor performer, actor called Ronnie Stevens, and he was given the, the, the sort of lead, he sort of replaced Gordon Chater, and, uh, you know, I mean, nobody had ever heard of him before, and that was Rupert Henderson, I don't know how he, came to bring out these people, but it was still the cultural cringe, you know. Did you have an opportunity to audition him? 
perhaps or no he just... no he was just foisted on me right. he, he started when I did I was the new executive director producer and he was the new star of Mavis and uh, no I, I knew him only in bit parts in carry on movies and things right. like that right. so and then they brought out John Bluthell John Bluthell yes another misfit as far as Mavis was concerned. He wanted to do goon humour and uh, it didn't fit. He wanted me to change uh, and do goon, a goon show and I said, no, this is the Mavis Brampton show. So that was another misfit I had to pull up with. But you have wonderful people like uh, Ronnie Fraser. Oh yes, Ronnie Fraser was what, Ronnie Fraser was made a star by Mavis and, and purely by his own talent and efforts. And, and Johnny Lockwood. Johnny Lockwood was marvellous. I mean, for a stand-up comic, um, he, he had played Fagan in London, in, in Oliver, so I knew he was an actor, but, uh, so he was good, but the thing about Johnny was he didn't just do his own stuff, he was very happy to be a feed in a couple of sketches. You know what I mean? You won't find many comedians who will do that, but so long as he got his his opportunities at a show, then he would quite happily be the feed for somebody else as the main character in a sketch or something like that. And so when it came to number 96, I wrote Aldo Godolph especially for Johnny because I knew, I knew he could do it. Well, maybe it's show, and now let us segue into number 96. These are both... Um, series on Australian television that rated highly in their day and they still rank amongst the most famous and influential programs that have appeared on Australian television. So let's cross over to number 96, that, that infamous block of flats in Moncur <laughs> Street in Paddington. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, it, it's, it's very uh, interesting, the fact that the Mavis Brampton show broke a lot of taboos and you know, jokingly made references to a lot of things that couldn't be said in public. I mean, you couldn't use the word pregnant on the ABC when the Mavis Brownster show was on. And we were, we were using it, you know, and all that sort of thing. And uh, we, we made references to things that had never been said in public or on public uh, television or radio. So, but, and people laughed because it was funny. And so having laughed at these subjects, by the time number 96 came along, I think they were going to take them a bit more seriously. You know, seriously. If you'd laughed at something, then you could settle back and take another look and, and, and take it a bit more seriously. So they actually, and strangely enough, followed on to one another, but with a few years in between. Number 96 was, was your baby, that was your conception. Yeah. You, you, you dreamt up this, yeah. this wonderful series. How did you receive the opportunity to go forth with it and, and, and actually make it well, a reality? Well, I'd done something. When I'd, uh, when I'd uh, done 18 months of Branston, I'd had enough then, and I left. And uh, then I did various things. I, I wrote special material for various people. I um, did a stage show, um, Lie Back and Enjoy It. So it's Hazel Phillips and Carol, Carol Ray. Ray. Yeah. Hazel Phillips and Carol Ray, yes. 
Um, and then um, I also did my agent. Oh, then I said to my agent, look, I seem to have done everything. What do I do next? He said, write a book. Write a book that has nothing to do with Australia and make it a surefire movie property. And so I wrote a book called Come to Mother. And it was sent over to London and it was accepted by the publishers. And so, on, a year later, when it was to be published, I'd saved enough money to go work. I said, I want to be over there. I said, I want to be over there when it's published and when it's bought for the movies. And people said, if it's, been, if it's bought for the movies. I said, no, when it's bought for the movies. <laughs> I was so sure it was going to be, you see. I, had, I was ready to go to England. I had done one episode, I'd been asked to do one episode of, an, uh, of a comedy series called The Group, it was called, and uh, it was for Cash Harmon, Bill, Bill uh, Harmon and Don Cash, and instead of one episode, I ended up writing nine out of thirteen. We got on so well together. So that was that earned me the money to go over to Australia for the uh, to London for the publication of my first novel. A week before I was due to leave for London, my agent Peter Groves, my literary agent Peter Groves, ran me and said, "Oh, Bill and Don want to take us to lunch because they want to discuss you doing the pilot for a new nighttime." drama series. And I said, what? I said, I'm leaving in a week. I said, I've moved out of my apartment and everything. And he said, oh, well, you know, he said, they're nice guys. I said, yeah, they are. I said, where's the lunch? And he said, Becky's. I said, oh, I'll come then. Because <laughs> I, like I like their Italian food. Yeah. And uh, so this was the lunch, and they, they said, we want you to do the uh, a treatment if you can do the treatment before you leave for a continuing series, they said, when we finish lunch, we'll take you and show you a building in Paddington. It's, it's six apartments and two shops, one on each side of the entrance on the ground floor. So when we finished lunch, they took me there and they showed me the building, which became the famous building. They said, uh, okay, just fill it with characters. And so I said, well, all right. And of course, I couldn't have cared less. Had anything ever been percolating about a, a no. concept for a show? So you were, no. you were making this up on the spot. But I was a brat. Yeah. I was still a brat. Yeah. And I, but I was a successful brat. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was on the point of leaving. My first novel was being published in London. I was going to fly over there. I couldn't have given a stuff about this, really. And I, th I thought, oh, you know, I said, oh, I said, can I put two homosexuals in one? I said, we might as well do Sydney as it is now. And I said, Sydney's got a big homosexual undercover scene. I said, can I put two homosexuals in one of the flats? And Bill Hammond said, yeah, give me homosexuality without any deviation. I don't know what he meant, but it 
I took it as a yes. <laughs> well, you're breaking ground already, just with uh, oh, those yeah. two inhabitants. Oh, yeah, that was that was the first thing. And so that night, I was staying with friend. I was staying with a friend, you see, in, in Kirribilli, and I, because I I moved out of my apartment and rented my apartment, I sat in a corner of the room. The, the friend had gone out to dinner. I sat in. I got uh, some scotch and sat in a corner of the room on cushions and uh, started to think about it. And I, I didn't invent the characters, I took them from people I knew. Uh, Alpha and Lucy Sutcliffe, Lancashire migrants, were my parents. And I didn't even bother changing my mother's name. She's Lucy in real life. So M Lucy became Lucy Sutcliffe. And, and, uh, Every community has a, a gossip or a nosy neighbour. Well, I lived. I was living in a. a I was living in a block of flats in um, Newtown Bay, and uh, it was a, uh, a very small block. And a lot of empty nesters had moved there, so I was the only young single bloke in it. And there was one old guy, and he kept an eye on things. And he say, "Oh, uh, I had visitors last night, did you?" <laughs> and I'd say, "No." I look at him blankly and say, no, and I had of course. And he said, oh, oh, I thought I heard uh, somebody leaving. And, uh, so, you see, I thought, oh. Anyway, so Dory, uh, he became a sex chain. <laughs> Dory was really a man Dory in Evans. real life. So Dory Evans was really a sex chain. So, yes, so she became the, the, um, the apartment, the blocks city beak, you know. The gossipy, sticky beak. And what, and what about the, the delicatessen downstairs with uh, Aldo and, he, and his wife? I did think I did think up Aldo for, but he was supposed to be Greek. And when Johnny Lockwood got the script, he rang me up one line and said, "David, he said I'm I, I'm having difficulty. He said I can't really do Greek. He said could I play him Jewish? And I said, Yeah, of course you can. So Aldo Godolphus became Jewish with Aldo... Have you ever heard of a Jewish person called Aldo? It's ridiculous. We forgot to change the name. So, yeah, but he became an absolute icon of the Jewish community because he was so nice and kindly and everything, and the, the Jewish community loved that because Jewish people were always being played in a negative light, you know, sort of crooks or something like that. And here was Aldo and then um, Mrs. Zabinski, who he later married, um, be became a really a nice, sympathetic Jewish family, you know. So you, you pitched this to Cash Harmon? Oh, no, I didn't pitch it to no. them. I voted to, and I, I just started out saying, walk down any, any street in Paddington and you'll see uh, an apartment block. Let's go in and and, see, and I, I did that of sort of leading by the hand and introducing all these characters, which sometimes I'd open the phone book and go and close my eyes just to, just to pinpoint a name. I couldn't be bothered thinking of a name. And I think up a name from the phone book. And um, so I, I wrote it all up that night. That before midnight, I finished. It was uh, about three or four hours' work, and uh, next day I typed it, 
sent it over to my agent to forward to Bill and Don. Didn't hear anything and flew to London. And the next next minute, Bill's on the phone to me in London saying, Jesus, David, they love it. The, the network. He said, write, a, write the pilot on the way home. So the pilot for this new Australian show was written in um, Athens and Bangkok and because I was stopping off at these places and typed up on the hotel typewriter in Hong Kong. <laughs> and then when Bill read it, he didn't, he said, David, you've tried to put too much into it. And here's what, here's the value of Bill Harmon. He wasn't a literary man, he was Jewish, and he was, sort of worked in New York theatre and everything. But he had ideas, and he said, you've tried to cram too much into episode one. He said, write episode four and work backwards. What clever advice. And I did. Yeah. What about the title? Number 96, where did that come from? Because that... Uh... Oh, that was, a bit, that was when I finished the treatment and it was almost midnight. And I, I drank about half a bottle of scotch by then. <laughs> and I thought, what can I call... Oh, it should be a clever title, like, while the stomach turns, you know, like the Carol Burnett yeah, thing. Or, yeah. You know, or something really wonderful. I thought, I can't... Th then I thought, oh... I thought, I'll just... I know what. I'll just label it with a number and then we can think of a clever title if it's accepted and so I thought it's going to roll off the tongue I thought number I thought N N number 19 number 29 and I got to number 96 and I thought oh that's got rhythm I'll put number 96 on it uh, to identify it treatment number 96 that was it and, the, and uh, Bill Harmon said, Jesus, you've even got sex into the title. <laughs> and you realised that? No, 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 <laughs> not at all. I was really quite innocent. Yeah. <laughs> people looked at me, they thought. When, when Number Isaac came on, you know, a few people looked at me, they thought I was some kind of sex maniac because of... <laughs> you put the Kama Sutra into the oh, title of the show. <laughs> <laughs> So there we are. So that's how, how the, the very often, you see, if, if Bill and Don had asked maybe another writer to do it, and there were many talented writers around, I mean, I'm not giving my big noting myself, but there were many talented writers around. But I, I, maybe they'd have been more careful Maybe they had more to lose. Some writers, you know. Mm. Maybe some writers, you see, hadn't made the money I'd made on uh, from Mavis Ramston or something, and they might have been careful. Mm. I had nothing to lose. I had a book to be published in London. I was quite uh, comfortable as far as money was concerned, and I just had nothing to lose. So I was cheeky, and that's how I said to Bill, if you'd have had another writer, they mightn't have ever, he said, I know, there would never have been a number 96. I was a kid at the time, but I used to sneak 
glimpses of the show when my parents are watching it. And the thing I remember from the series is the bomb blast, when a lot of the favourite characters were exited from, from the series. Not a lot, but there were two or three... Uh, the key, characters. Char- key characters. Key yeah. characters. Because we'd run out of... We had a story conference, and we'd literally run out of situations to put them in, and plots to put them in. And uh, that was it. Um, and I, I just said jokingly, why don't we just blow them all up? <laughs> like a joke. And Bill said, yeah. And <laughs> I'd thrown it into this story conference as a joke. But what listeners need to realise too, this is the first time that this sort of thing is happening. I mean, it's been repeated many times in soap opera oh, since. Yeah. People being stuck in a vault or a, an explosion or a, you know, a bomb blast or a, a terrorist attack uh, to kill off a few of the, the, yeah. the characters. But, but you, this is the original oh, yeah. model for all of that. Yeah, yes. number 96. Yeah, yes it was. And um, of course, when, it, when we decided who to drop, uh, um, we were 11 weeks episodes in advance, always. But of course we had to rewrite a lot of them to lead up to this explosion. And uh, it involved a lot of hard work, a lot of... Uh, right. And of course... They did it. You know, these days, they do a facsimile of, of, of the building and put it into a paddock and blow it up. In those days, they actually blew up the set in the studio. I mean, it was on a Saturday, and they had uh, some explosive experts come in and plant these little explosives, and everybody had to leave the studio. It blew all the studio doors open. <laughs> It literally, it was literally exploded in the studio. It was amazing. Wow. It was amazing. And of course, the next day, it was like a real catastrophe. Front page had, you, it was front page with a list of the dead or injured as if it was real. Well, the characters were so vivid and so beloved. I mean, Dory Evans, we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the community yeah. nosy oh, person. Oh, yes, I mean... But uh, making her the queen of the malaprop was genius, I think. Because <laughs> you need the, the, the comic source in the, in the pieces. Oh, right? yes. And the, oh, it, it, it was more comedy than, you know, it was more comedy than sex, really, if you yes. analyse it. Yes. And those catchphrases of, why wasn't I told? Yeah. And Herbert and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Arnold Feather. Yeah. Fabulous yeah. characters. And... and uh, Allow me to be this judge. <laughs> She'd say, I loved all those, yes. It became, everybody was talking about it, you know. Uh, uh, teachers were complaining because uh, the, the kids were talking like Dory. You know, I forget now what they were saying, but they were saying, they were, they were using her words instead of the real words. But uh, yes, it was, it was all incredible. It was all incredible. Well, review writing, um, screenplays, novel writing, episodic television. Not content with all that, you then go into writing a musical with an adaptation of Carefully Mighty Hero. Oh, yes, that was, uh, well, not recently, but uh, in recent years, yes, that's right. But another string of your bow as far as writing goes. Yes, that's right. And unfortunately, it's, uh, apart from a week in Canberra, 
it's it's we've never been successful in um, in having it uh, produced by anyone. I um, we did um, a sort of concert version at the Tilbury Hotel one Sunday night in Woolloomooloo with um, Julie Anthony, Carol Ray, Nancy Hayes, and uh, Carol Ray and. You can't wish for stellar cast. Stellar cast, uh, seeing the numbers and strung together. It was a packed house of theatre people, and we videoed it. And uh, this actually, eventually, uh, somebody suggested I send a copy of that video because I was going to New York on a trip. A video and the script to Harold Prince, the very famous. I said, oh, I couldn't do that, you know. And uh, I said, uh, unsolicited material, I've never done that in my life, you know. And they said, oh, he's wonderful, he's wonderful. And um, so I sent him a fax, it was faxes in those days. Uh, I sent a fax and said, uh, on my uh, visit to New York, may I leave a copy of this actual office? The next day, I get a fax from Hal Prince himself saying, oh, don't do that. He said, send it to me in advance and then we'll have something to talk about when you get here. Brilliant. So I was going, to, I was going on a trip to South Africa and then coming back via America. So I sent it off to his office in New York eventually landed in New York from Galavica, phoned his office. Oh, I mean, the reception was incredible. Uh, his reception, oh, David from Australia, we've been wondering. He said, she said, Hal was just saying the other day, I wonder what's happened to you and all that. She said, when can you come in? This is Hal Prince, yeah. you know. King of Broadway. King yeah. of Broadway. Just shows you the, 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 oh, couldn't get an open door in Australia. Couldn't get a look in. Uh, anyway, so I said, tomorrow, fine, we'll expect you at 10 o'clock. I walk in, he welcomes me with open arms, and he gives it a wonderful quip. He said, there's Sammy, he knew Sammy Lock Elliot, who wrote it, who wrote the original book. And then he, he said, Sammy would be quite proud of this. He said, he's done a great job with it. And we had a lovely session. And he said, of course, he said, it has to be launched in Australia. He said, you have to go back and launch it in Australia because that's where it's set and all that sort of thing. He said, but what can I do? What can I do to help you? He said, I'll write a letter. I'll write a letter with my praise in it and recommend it, recommending that it be done. He said, come back, collect it tomorrow. This is how all this so wonderful. So generous. And I'd been, I'd, I'd, I'd taken over a copy of my latest book, so I said, like, a couple of, oh, he was going on holiday, he said, See, this has been my last job, writing this letter, he said, I'm off on holiday. I said, oh, I've got something for you to read then. And I said, here's a copy of my latest book. And he said, and I'll give you my uh, autobiography. And he wrote in it, um, um, here's hoping uh, careful gets the production it deserves, Harold Prince, and uh, got there in the bookcase. And so I called in, in, in the following day, and the letter was there, 
I brought it back to Australia, did numerous copies. I sent a copy to every theatre aid company in Australia and didn't get one reply. Outrageous. So that was that. I've heard much of the score too, which you collaborated with on. With yes, Ron, I wrote Ron, the lyrics with Ron Craig and the and the uh, and the book. Mm-hmm. And Ron Craig wrote the music. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a beautiful score, beautiful score. And I'm I'm amazed too that it has not had a, a production. Well, do your best. That show, <laughs> spread the word, <laughs> spread the word. <laughs> David, thank you. This has been a delightful conversation um, and of an extraordinary career. Has it, have you become overwhelmed at what you've accomplished in, in that time? No. I've always considered myself a working person, you know, a working writer, you know. And people say now, oh, you've retired to the Gold Coast. I've said, a writer never retires. You've always got some something going through your brain, uh, a plot or something or other. So I said, you never really retire. Do you still sit with the typewriter or the computer? And Well, no, not, not since I've been up here. I have be- I've become rather lazy because, you know, I mean, it's a big, a lifetime change. My whole life has been crowded with... with, with demands and people and, and deadlines and everything and now I've got you know plenty of time and it's had you know it's had that lazy effect on me I've still got a, I've, I've got a marvelous idea for a book and I know I'm going to set, settle down and write it eventually but I keep on thinking oh not at the moment not at the moment <laughs> Don't put off what you can do today. I know that's a very good thing. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Maybe I'll keep that in mind. Do. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. As a fan of the television and theatre mentioned in this episode, you have no doubt been in awe of the career charted by David Sale. Erudite and candid, he has been a super focus for the podcast. Thank you, David. Thanks for joining us also in this episode. If you're enjoying this series of conversations, don't forget to rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts. It enables the podcast to be shared with a wider audience. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.